We open the Holy Scriptures to Hebrews chapter 9. And together we will read the entire chapter, Hebrews 9. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service, and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubim of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. It was was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands. Which are the figures of the true. But into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood for others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared 
to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Thus far we read in the sacred scriptures, On the basis of Hebrews 9 and the rest of God's word, we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 18. Page 10 in the back of the Psalter, Lord's Day 18, which begins with question 46. How dost thou understand these words? He ascended into heaven. That Christ, in the sight of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven, and that he continues there for our interest until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. Is not Christ then with us, even to the end of the world, as he hath promised? Christ is very man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth. But with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. But if his human nature is not present wherever his Godhead is, are not then these two natures in Christ separated from one another? Not at all. For since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature he assumed, and yet is nevertheless in this human nature and remains personally united to it. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take up to himself us, his members. Thirdly, that he sends us his spirit as an earnest, by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, and not things on earth. Beloved in the Lord, as we come to Lord's Day 18, we sit again under our catechism's instruction as it leads us through the steps of our Lord and Savior's life and ministry. Previous Lord's Days have led us down the various steps and stages of our Lord Jesus' state of humiliation in which he suffered and merited for us all of the blessings of salvation. And now the catechism is leading us up the steps, the different stages of his state of exaltation, in which our Lord Jesus Christ, the victor over death and sin, is glorified and applies to us all of the blessings he has earned for us. Last week in 1 Corinthians 15 and Lord's Day 17, we learned that Jesus Christ is the Lord from heaven who came down and took our flesh upon himself so that he might be the second Adam. That is, the head of the new humanity. The new humanity which consists of all of God's elect. For them he died and paid for their sins. And for them he arose again on the third day. He arose the quickening spirit to bring life and immortality to his people. And now Lord's Day 18 explains the next stage of that state of exaltation and the very next article of the Apostles' Creed. Having risen again from the dead, Jesus did not return to his normal earthly life that he had lived from the time of his birth onward, but Jesus arose so that he might ascend into heaven there to continue his work for our benefit and for our interest. The Lord from heaven 
having come down and accomplished his work, returns to heaven. And the important truth that Lord's Day 18 seeks to impress upon us is this. That it is good for us that Jesus ascended. It is just as good for us that Jesus went back up to heaven as it was good for us that he came down from heaven. For both his coming down and his going up are essential parts of his work as the mediator of the covenant as our Savior. And that we will see this morning as we study the truths summarized in Lord's Day 18. Our theme is, he ascended into heaven. Simply the words of the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven. And the first place we're going to look at the fact that this ascension into heaven was Jesus' entrance into the most holy place for us. Secondly, we will look at the fact that Jesus' ascension has this purpose. It is for our interest. That is our advantage, our benefit. And then finally, we will see that Jesus' ascension into heaven is not permanent, but is until he comes again. Then he will come to take us to be with him forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. Catechism begins with the important question, How dost thou understand these words? He ascended into heaven. What do these words mean? And the first part of the answer is that Christ, in the sight of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven. That's the ascension. You notice that Lord's Day 18 touches more on the history, the biblical history of this event, than Lord's Day 17 did on the history of the resurrection. And part of the explanation is the time in which our catechism was written. In the Reformation age, there was very little controversy about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but there was substantial controversy about the ascension, particularly what the ascension meant for Jesus' human nature. And that is reflected, too, in a couple of the questions and answers in this Lord's Day, which presently we will look at. The ascension was Jesus going up to heaven. He ascended 40 days After his resurrection, in those 40 days after he arose, Jesus was not with his disciples all the time, but he appeared to them periodically to instruct them, to teach them. Jesus was, during these 40 days, preparing his disciples for the day that he would depart from them when the Lord from heaven would return to heaven. And on the 40th day, Jesus took his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And Acts 1, as well as Luke 24, relates to us this history. There, atop the Mount of Olives, with his hands uplifted in blessing, Jesus was, in the words of Acts 1, verse 9, taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. His disciples saw him go until that cloud covered the Lord as he was taken up, and that was the last his disciples saw of him in the flesh. He ascended into heaven. Now that history raises the question, what really happened when Jesus was taken up? What is the import, the significance, the meaning of those words, taken up? What happened That 40th day after Jesus' resurrection. And let it be emphasized that it happened. This is a real historical event, the ascension is. It was not a vision that Jesus' disciples had. It was not some spiritual experience after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it was a real historical event recorded for us in the Gospels. Jesus was taken up. He was taken up by God his Father. God the Father who had sent him down who had sent him down with a specific task to carry out the work of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Mediator, the Savior. And having finished that work, as Jesus himself said on the cross, it is finished. Having perfectly accomplished all that the Father gave him to do, Jesus was taken up by the Father. That means he was taken back up into heaven. But now what we must understand when we speak about the ascension is that we are speaking about Jesus Christ according to his human nature. Jesus is God. 
He is God the Son, and according to his divine nature, he is everywhere present. We are speaking of Jesus Christ according to the human nature which he assumed, and which is united to his divine nature in his one person. Just as Jesus suffered and died in his human nature, and just as Jesus arose from the dead with glorious new immortal life in the human nature, so too, at the ascension, Jesus is taken up into heaven in his human nature. The glorified flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, the glorified soul, the man Jesus Christ, was taken up. That is, there was a change of place. From the moment of his incarnation, the virgin conception and birth, To this time, Jesus' human nature, his body and soul, had been on earth. And because his human nature is a real human nature, it can only be in one place at one time. But now, Jesus ascends. His human nature goes up to heaven. His glorified, risen human nature goes up to heaven. Where the man Jesus Christ abides. At the right hand of his father. It was a real change of place. For our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the angels had said. At the tomb. He is not here. He is risen. The words of the angels upon the Mount of Olives. Have this import. He is not here. He is ascended. That then leads to the next question. Why did Jesus have to go up? What is the necessity of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why did he have to leave earth and go up into heaven? And there's a few reasons that can be gleaned from the scriptures. The first and the foremost has already been mentioned. It is finished. Jesus assumed our flesh. He came down from heaven not to stay here but to do a specific work. Our salvation. To save his people from their sins. And having accomplished that work, he returns from whence he came. Secondly, Jesus ascends into heaven because this is his due reward. Jesus, as God in the flesh, is the only qualified Savior. He's the only qualified mediator. He is the only one who can merit with God. And his perfect finished work, his suffering and his death, has merited for him now in the human nature all the glory of heavenly life. And so Jesus must ascend because it is his due reward. It is his due reward for finishing and completing all of the work that the Father gave him to do. But now, in the third place, Jesus must ascend because there is work for him to do in heaven on our behalf. Yes, on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. But when Jesus said, it is finished, that doesn't mean he has nothing else to do on our behalf. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, what he was saying is, all of the work given to me to merit and obtain the blessings of salvation is perfectly accomplished. But the work of our Savior doesn't cease there. Now, all of the blessings he earned need to be imparted need to be applied, need to be brought into the possession of his redeemed people in time and history. And that's the work that Jesus performs now in heaven as the ascended Lord. He ascends into heaven that from heaven he might pour out his graces upon his church throughout the ages until he comes again. Jesus is still our active mediator in heavenly glory. Not earning for us blessings, he's done that already, but applying them to his people. And that will be talked about more in the second point when we look at how Jesus' ascension is for our interest, for our benefit. Well now, Jesus' ascension into heaven 
brings before us a couple of truths that are worth thinking about for a couple moments this morning. Jesus' ascension was a real change of place for his human nature. He left earth and he went up into heaven. And the first truth that that brings out then is the very real existence of heaven. Heaven is a place. Heaven is not the figment of man's imagination. It is a real place. And the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, his being taken up by God the Father, that he might abide there in heaven, testifies to us of the reality of heaven. Heaven is just as real as earth. The visible world around us. Heaven is a place, albeit a very different place, than this place, which is the only place that we know. And the outstanding difference between heaven and earth is that earth, and indeed this physical universe, is physical and material. It is earthy. But heaven is the spiritual realm. Now understand, heaven as the spiritual realm is not some eternal plane of existence. No, heaven is a part of God's creation. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the first thing that we think about when we read Genesis 1 verse 1 is that in the beginning God created the physical universe. And that's true, but part of that is he created the heaven. That is the spiritual realm of creation as well. Since the beginning, God's creation has had both a material plane and an immaterial plane. A physical realm and a spiritual realm. And heaven is that spiritual realm, the spiritual part of God's creation. Further biblical evidence of that is the fact that God has created non-physical beings, spiritual beings, the angels who inhabit heaven. They are spiritual beings, and yet they are creatures. They are not eternal beings. They had a beginning. They are creations of God, and they inhabit heaven. And so heaven is a real place, but it is a spiritual place. It is the place in creation where God, as spirit, is present in a special way. Now, we understand that doesn't mean that our God is confined to heaven. That's the crude heathen notion that people have had throughout the ages, that the gods are just these slightly more exalted beings who inhabit a slightly more exalted dimension of the world. That's not the idea. God, as the Catechism says, is illimitable. He's eternal. You cannot confine him. Heaven is God's creation. But God existed before heaven existed. God is the eternal I am that I am. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. There is God and there is creation. And all things that exist were made by the one eternal God. And so, though we talk about heaven as God's dwelling place, we must never think that heaven is this special place that confines God. No, God transcends not only earth, but he transcends the heaven and the heaven of heavens. Solomon understood this. You can read in 1 Kings 8 verse 27 in Solomon's great prayer in which he dedicated the Old Testament temple. He said, Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house. Heaven is a real place. It is a spiritual place that God created. That's something mysterious and incomprehensible to us because God has made us of the earth earthy. He created us here and now to inhabit this physical universe. Our bodies, our minds, our senses are adapted to life on this earth. And therefore our bodily senses, our sight, our hearing, our touch, our smell, our taste cannot perceive the very real spiritual plane that is heaven. Heaven is real But our bodies and our senses, which are of the earth earthy, cannot yet perceive it. The only way that we can know of heaven is for God to reveal it to us as he does in his word. And the only way for us creatures who are of the earth earthy to enter heaven is for our 
human nature, our body and soul, to be glorified and transfigured. And we saw something of that in 1 Corinthians 15 last week. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But Jesus Christ, at the ascension, enters into heaven in our flesh. He arose with a glorified, a transfigured human body. It was a real body, yet it was marvelously changed. It was no longer a natural body, but a spiritual body. And that doesn't mean that it's immaterial or that it's not physical anymore. It is, but it has been changed and transfigured such that it is adapted and fit for heavenly life. And that's the wonder God will work Upon our bodies, upon the day of Jesus Christ, when he raises our bodies up and makes them like unto his glorious body. So heaven, Jesus ascended into heaven. Heaven is a real place. It is the spiritual realm of creation. It is where Jesus is now, according to his human nature. And it is where he will take his people to live with him forever. Now the second Truth that comes to the foreground in connection with Jesus' ascension is a truth that's very important to maintain concerning Jesus' human nature. The fact that the ascension was a real change of place for Jesus' human nature testifies to the reality of his human nature. And this gets at the concern of question and answer 48 in the Catechism. Question and answer 48 in the Catechism addresses a Reformation-era controversy. There were some who taught that when Jesus ascended, His glorified human nature became ubiquitous. And that theological term, the ubiquity of Christ's human nature, simply means everywhere present. The idea is that upon the ascension, Jesus' human nature filled all of creation. And the Catechism explains to us that that's a mistake. When Jesus ascended, his human nature did not take upon itself the attribute of his divine nature so that it became everywhere present. That cannot be because it would violate the integrity of his human nature. A human nature that is everywhere present is no longer a real human nature. It's mysterious. It's marvelous. We can't fully wrap our minds around How Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And these two natures are united in his one person such that they remain distinct. But that's the truth of the scriptures. When Jesus ascended, his body really left this earth. Jesus is not physically present here anymore. Because his real human body can only be in one place. For the years of his earthly life and ministry, it was here. Now, it is in heaven. So at the ascension, Jesus' human nature was in no way divinized, nor was his human nature, or nor was his divine nature, humanized. But now, to wrap up the first point, let's connect the truth of the ascension to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 is a fascinating passage that explains how Jesus' life and ministry fulfills the entirety of the Old Testament tabernacle service. Fulfills the Old Testament priesthood, fulfills the Old Testament sacrifices. And what we want to see especially this morning is that the ascension of Jesus Christ brought all of these Old Testament figures to their full and final completion. So let's walk through, very briefly, the chapter of Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 sets before us the Old Testament tabernacle, or temple, and its priestly ministry. Verse 1 refers to a worldly sanctuary. That's the tabernacle that Israel had in the wilderness, and later the temple that was situated in Jerusalem. And verses 2 and 3 describe the furnishings and the architecture of the tabernacle and the temple. You can recall that the tabernacle sat in an outer court, and that the the tabernacle itself had two main rooms. There was the holy place where the regular priests ministered and offered incense and prayers. And in the holy place, there was the table of the showbread. There was the seven 
the, the golden candlestick with seven candles. And then at the far end of the holy place was the veil. The veil which blocked entrance into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was set. The priests in the Old Testament ministered daily in the holy place. But only once every year, the high priest and the high priest alone would pass through the veil into the most holy place on the great day of atonement and he would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice on the mercy seat, the lid that was upon the altar, upon the Ark of the Covenant. And that was a figure. That was a picture teaching the Old Testament people of God that access to God, fellowship with God, could only be had through blood atonement, through the payment of the penalty that sins deserve. But now, Hebrews 9, as it sets all of these pictures before us, teaches us Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. In his life and ministry, he was the perfect high priest. All of the Old Testament priests and all of the blood sacrifices that they brought, they could not perfect the people. The blood of bulls and goats could not wipe away a single sin. And you see that in the fact that those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again. The high priest, year after year, went into the most holy place with the blood of atonement. All of it was just a picture pointing to the priest, the Lamb of God, the coming Savior, whose sacrifice would take away sin. And who would enter into the most holy place and there abide. Hebrews 9 verse 11 says, Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a great and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, and then verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You see, Good Friday, that was the real day of atonement. And the cross of Calvary, that was the real altar of sacrifice. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God in our flesh, was the Lamb of God. And what happened on Calvary was the high priest offering himself as the perfect sacrifice once for all the people of God, taking away the guilt of their sin and earning for them the right of entrance into the most holy place, the place of God's dwelling, his innermost presence. And that was pictured too. The moment Jesus died, what happened to that veil that blocked entrance into the most holy place? It was torn in half. And here is where we get to the connection to Jesus' ascension. Hebrews 9 verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which were figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. You see, the most holy place of the Old Testament tabernacle prefigured heaven, which is the true most holy place. And that veil that blocked entrance into the earthly most holy place pictured the reality that sinners may not come into the presence of God. Heaven is closed to the sinner. But Jesus, our high priest, Jesus, the Lamb of God, tore the veil in half. By his death, he has granted us entrance into the most holy place, into heaven itself. And now at the ascension, Jesus, our head, enters 
the most holy place for us. There to stand before the presence of God representing us. He has opened the way to heaven. He, by his death, his resurrection, his ascension, guarantees our entrance into heaven. He is, as we read in Hebrews 10, the new and living way behind the veil. The ascension brings to final fulfillment all of those pictures. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system. It has passed away. The reality has come. The sacrifice is offered. The priest has entered into the holy place. The most holy place. And there he abides for us. And so you see the importance of Jesus' ascension. Jesus' ascension transitioned the church from the Old Testament age of types and shadows into the New Testament age of fulfillment. The privileges, the blessings that we enjoy now as New Testament saints are the fruit, not only of Jesus' work upon the cross, but are the fruit also of his ascension. And that gets us then to the second point where we see that Jesus' ascension is certainly for our interest, our advantage. Jesus was taken up. Jesus, according to his flesh, went away. Not to get away from us, but for our interest, for our good. When he left earth and entered into heaven, Jesus did not forget about his people still on earth. He didn't leave his care and concern for us at the pearly gates, if you will. But he ascended into heaven for our interest. As answer 46 continues, so that there he continues for our interest. And the idea of that word continues is ceaselessly works. Now, it may seem that Jesus' ascension into heaven is not in our best interest. After all, he's taken up and we are still down here. There is now a physical separation between us and our Lord. That doesn't seem good, does it? After all, did not Jesus promise, as question 47 asks, that he would always be with us till the end of the world? And indeed he did. Matthew 28, verse 20, not long before Jesus ascended, he told his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And he seals that promise with amen, meaning verily, verily. When the God of truth says amen, he means it. Jesus meant it. I am with you to the end of the world. That's his promise. But elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus also promised that he would go away. Matthew 26, verse 11, for example. Jesus told his disciples, For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. Indicating to his disciples, the day is coming. I'm not going to be here in the same way that I was before. Or more well known, John 16, verse 28, part of Jesus' discourse to his disciples the night he was betrayed, right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. The man Jesus Christ ascended and is in heaven. He went away. How can that be for our interest? Well, answer 47 explains how the Lord Jesus is still with us. He's kept his promise. Christ is very man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth. But with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. The fact that Jesus, according to his human nature, was taken up 
does not mean he was taken from us. He is still with us in very important ways. His Godhead, his divine nature, he's everywhere present. He's as with us as he ever was. He is with us by his majesty. And there the idea is his sovereignty. The ascended Christ reigns in heaven. And from heaven he rules and directs all things for our interest. He is with us. His grace is with us. His grace can never be taken from us. The favor of God abides upon his people. That power, that saving power, that sin overcoming power is here, is present. He's with us by his grace. And lastly, as the catechism mentions, he's with us by his spirit. And that's very important. Jesus especially ascended into heaven so that he might give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who abides with us forever. John 16 verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. And that word expedient means it's good for you. It's beneficial for you that I go away. Why? He goes on. If I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The outstanding benefit of Christ's ascension is that he pours out his spirit. And by his spirit, he draws nigh and dwells within his people in a very close, very intimate, very powerful way. Though Jesus is absent from the body, or is absent from us in the body, he is present by his spirit. His grace, His majesty, His Godhead. And thus it is no way disadvantageous, but it is in our interest. That then brings us to the last question and answer, number 49. Question and answer 49 zooms in on three particular benefits of Jesus' ascension. And really brings out how it is good for us. How it is in our best interest right now that Jesus ascended into heaven. And the first that answer 49 brings out is that Jesus is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. An advocate. That's a powerful, assuring truth when you understand all that it entails. An advocate is more than an intercessor. Jesus is that. Hebrews 7, the end of the chapter, speaks of Jesus as our intercessor. An intercessor is someone who prays for you. But an advocate is someone who speaks up on your behalf, who represents you, who pleads your cause. And especially this, an advocate pleads for you in court and argues your case before a judge. 1 John 2 verse 1, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The idea there is that Jesus, who ascended into heaven, who is at the right hand of God, constantly performs this special service on behalf of his people. He pleads our cause. When we sin, he points to his own finished work and says, Father, forgive them for my sake. Father, deal with them not according to their sins, but according to the multitude of thy mercies for my sake. Look upon them not in their sins, but upon look upon them As covered in my righteousness. For I am the righteous one. And Jesus advocacy for us at the the throne of grace. Is not something that cajoles or has to persuade the father. But God the father ever delights in the appeals of his son. And will surely grant everything that our advocate asks. Now that's an important truth. Let it sink in for a moment. 
And you see how this truth strengthens the assurance of your salvation. When you sin, when you're humbled, you're on your knees before God, and the sense of His holiness and His majesty is pressing upon you, and you feel your unworthiness, and even though you confess your sin, you know that your confession Your confession can't wipe away sin. Remember, Jesus wiped away your sin. His precious blood. And not only that, but as you pray to God, as you confess your sin, there are two who are speaking. You and your advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous, Who is saying, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. Because of what I did. For them. He's your advocate before the throne of grace. And that's the certainty. That's the certainty of the answer to your prayer. That's the certainty of the forgiveness of your sins. Not because you pray so good. Not because you confess so well. But because Jesus died for you and paid for that sin. And is your advocate at the right hand of God. Ever pointing to His finished work. Which covers your sin. That is part of why we have boldness to come before the throne of grace. Jesus is our advocate in heaven. He ascended to be that advocate. His ascension is for our interest. Secondly, answer 49 goes on to say that Jesus ascended that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take up to himself us, his members. And here, that familiar concept of a pledge comes back. We saw that Jesus' resurrection was a pledge of our eventual bodily resurrection. What happens to the head must happen to the members of his body. Jesus arose as the first fruits from the dead. And the rest of the harvest will follow. Jesus ascends as our head. Our flesh goes to heaven. And where our head goes, the rest of the body must follow. His ascension is a pledge that we shall likewise dwell in the most holy place, in our flesh, with our God. The members will follow the rest of his body. Our flesh is right now in heaven. And your flesh will eventually get to heaven and enjoy that heavenly life in the new heavens and the new earth. Let your flesh rest in that hope. Third, the Catechism points out that Jesus ascended that He might send us His Spirit as an earnest. And here we come back to that outstanding blessing of the ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an earnest. That's what 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22 teaches, where the Bible says, Who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. An earnest is a down payment. For example, a down payment on a car. You, give some, you make a payment of some of the, the money, some of the total price of that car. You pay it right up front. And that down payment is also a guarantee that the rest of the payment is going to come. Well, the idea is Christ has earned for us all of salvation. All of the blessings of salvation. And in due time, all of those blessings will come to us. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the earnest the down payment as it, as, you, as it may be. The down payment of that salvation. The Spirit is poured out in us. The Spirit dwells in us. Guaranteeing the fullness that is to come. And the Spirit works. The Spirit works in the heart and the life of the believer. Sanctifying, purifying, preparing the child of God for heaven. It's by the power of the Spirit then that we live not for earthly things, but we seek things above, as the Catechism says, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. 
the ascension is for our interest. Jesus ascends to be our advocate. He ascends as the pledge that we shall be with him in heaven. And he ascends to give us the earnest of the Spirit. Now lastly, until he comes again. Ever since Jesus ascended, he is up there according to his flesh. And we are down here. There is a certain physical separation between us. He is absent from us in the flesh. But this parting that took place at the ascension of Jesus Christ is not permanent, but temporary. He is coming again. As the closing words of answer 46 say, he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. He continues in heaven for our interest until, until that day appointed by the Father. When he shall come again in the same manner as he went up. And that is our great hope. When he comes back. He shall raise the dead. He shall make our bodies like unto his most glorious body. He shall enact the final judgment in which he shall publicly declare the righteousness of his people on the basis of his finished work. And he shall renew all things. And We, his risen saints, with the entire assembly of the church of the firstborn, shall inherit that heavenly life in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will dwell with him face to face in the most holy place. And Jesus will never go away again. All things perfect. And so we wait for that day. We yearn for the second coming. As the ascension directs our eyes upward. And as we yearn for the coming of our Savior, let us watch and wait and be faithful, seeking those things which are above. Amen. Our faithful God and Father, we thank Thee for the ascension of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it was in our best interests. Shower His blessings upon us. Assure us of His continual advocacy before Thy throne of grace. Work in our hearts by the earnest of our salvation, thy Holy Spirit, to sanctify us daily and keep our heads uplifted and our eyes fixed upon heaven and the things of heaven until the day that our Lord returns to bring us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For our 